Remember how exciting sugared cereal was when you were a kid? You knew it was bad for you and it felt like a little treat to get it? Or maybe you were someone whose parents were way less strict than mine and you got it all the time. And then you grew up and you were like, I gotta stop this, it's pretty terrible for me. But with Magic Spoon, we can go back to that sugared cereal deliciousness without all the bad stuff. Magic Spoon comes in all the traditional fun flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, but with zero grams of sugar, 14 grams of protein, and only 140 calories and four net grams of carbs per serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, so you can get all the yummy deliciousness without the junk food hangover. If that sounds good to you, you should go to magicspoon.com slash politicsgirl to grab a variety pack and try it out for yourself. Be sure to use our promo code politicsgirl at checkout to save $5 on your order. Magic Spoon is so confident that you'll like their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash politicsgirl and use the code politicsgirl to save $5 off. Big thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Today's pod is brought to you by Sunbasket. And if you're a busy person like me or someone that's just better at eating food than you are at cooking it, Sunbasket is for you. Sunbasket delivers healthy meals using organic produce and sustainable seafood and meats so you don't end up stuck shopping and cooking and trying to keep healthy all by yourself. Seriously, Sunbasket puts the whole thing on autopilot with easy prep meal kits for lunch and dinner, quick healthy snacks, or grab and go breakfast for busy mornings. It feels like you're hacking the system, which is about as close as I'm ever going to get to hacking anything. With new recipes from award-winning chefs to keep you inspired, whether you're vegetarian, paleo, gluten-free, low-carb, high-protein, Sunbasket has something to check out in every box. Set up a weekly delivery, skip a week when you need to. It's simple and easy, and let me tell you, we can all use a little more simple and easy in our lives. Right now, Sunbasket is offering $90 off and a free gift when you order. So go to sunbasket.com politicsgirl and enter promo code politicsgirl at checkout. That's S-U-N-B-A-S-K-E-T dot com slash politicsgirl and enter promo code politicsgirl. We all need to eat well, but it's pretty great to not have to think too much about it. Hats off to you, Sunbasket. When Masterworks approached the show to be a potential sponsor, I was totally confused about what they did. Because this pod is so fundamentally based in facts and truth, and I really do my best to try and give you things straight, I won't do sponsorships with companies I don't believe in, and in this case, I didn't even understand. So Masterworks got on the phone with me and they blew my socks off. Okay, so you know how the ultra-rich invest in art? Like that's a thing? Like when Mitt Romney recently said, we can't tax the rich too much because they'll just take their money out of the stock market and put it in art? Well, that's what I'm talking about. Masterworks is an innovative startup that allows regular people like you and me to invest in iconic works of art like Basquiat's and Warhol's without being millionaires ourselves. Do you know what's outperformed the S&P for 15 years in a row? Art or what the fancy call resilient alternative assets. So while only certain people can afford a Picasso for their wall, Masterworks is allowing regular people to invest in them for their portfolios. They are democratizing the art market. And it's not only wildly cool, but it's a consistent and stable return. I don't know about you, but I've always wanted to invest in art. And now we can. Get started at masterworks.art slash politicsgirl. And Masterworks will give Politics Girl listeners priority access to their latest offerings. I'm not kidding. I highly recommend you check this out. It is a super cool company. That's masterworks.art slash politicsgirl. See important disclaimers at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. If this was a Marvel movie, there would be like a black cloud of malevolence, right? That would move and it would occupy all of the 
breakdowns that you can seek to name, right? It's penetrated and it's there. And so now it calls itself the Republican Party home. Well, you make a good point. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. This week's episode is a candid conversation with American strategist Steve Schmidt. I'm so excited for this conversation because I'm such a big fan of Steve's ability to message, to speak off the cuff and explain things in a clear and concise way that most journalists cannot. In many ways, Politics Girl works within the Steve Schmidt tradition of communication, so it's a treat to have someone whose skills I admire so much on the show. Now, that being said, Steve and I come from very different political camps. Steve has been a very active and prolific Republican for most of his career. He is most well known for working as communications and PR strategist for George W. Bush, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and running John McCain's presidential campaign. Steve is actually the one credited with suggesting Sarah Palin is McCain's running mate. And even though I believe both men went on to regret that decision, there's no question Palin brought some real attention to that campaign and was the first in a long line of what would become MAGA-type leaders that spoke from the hip and shunned the political class, which, to Steve's credit, was a pretty prolific awareness of the undercurrent of the American psyche. A sincere conservative in a world of sellout Republicans, Schmidt was extremely critical of Donald Trump from the beginning, and of the GOP for supporting him. He officially left the Republican Party in 2018, calling it the Party of Trump, corrupt, indecent, and immoral, and leaving out only a few exceptions, he said his old party was filled with feckless cowards who disgrace and dishonor the legacies of their party's greatest leaders. He was one of the founding members of the Super PAC, The Lincoln Project, which was founded to campaign against Trump and has been a very vocal advocate about the dangers this country is in, saying today the GOP has become a danger to our democracy and our values. The Republican Party is an organized conspiracy for the purpose of maintaining power for self-interest and the self-interest of its donor class. It is no longer dedicated to the American experiment. And for that, I couldn't agree more. And it's such a breath of fresh air to hear a conservative speak with such candor and truth. So without further ado, please welcome Steve Schmidt, strategist, gifted communicator, and passionate fighter for American democracy. Welcome, Steve. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. You are one of my favorite communicators, and I love that you're on TV speaking regular language to regular people. It allows us to be part of the discourse um, so much more than having a bunch of talking heads talk to us. But let's start with the word discourse. We just heard legitimate political discourse coming out of the RNC, censoring their own members, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, for being on the 1-6 committee trying to get to the bottom of what happened that terrible day. And then we had Mitch McConnell come out and say the MAGA narrative of that day is not something we agree with. It was a horrible day. And you were recently on Lawrence O'Donnell's last word, and he said to you, do you think that this split is the defining moment for the Republican Party? And I thought what you said was very interesting because you said it's not the defining moment for the Republican Party. It's the defining moment for the country. And what did you mean by that? Well, I, first off, it's great to be with you. Um, I, I just think you're one of the most compelling voices in the country right now speaking in plain American common sense about our birthright, our inheritance. You know, we're the luckiest people in the world. We're, we're Americans. And so what does that mean? Um, because the idea of the country, and it's an idea, it's, it's not a race of people. It's not a blood and soil nation. 
We're made up of all the people of the world where every language is spoken every day. And so in 2022, legitimate political discourse, um, as you pointed out, defecating in the hallways, urinating in the hallways, murdering, bludgeoning, uh, desecrating the flag. You know, that building is a symbol for democracy. Biden, when he was president-elect, he, right, he called it the citadel of democracy. Um, but it also stands as the greatest act of optimism in American history. Now, Lincoln insisted that it, that it be completed during civil war. So that government of the people, by the people, for the people could be reconsecrated. It's defilement and the embrace of legitimate political discourse isn't just an apologia. It's an embrace of a worldview. And what the worldview says is that the strong can take from the weak because they're stronger. And so when you add it all up, this moment in history, and I think that so much of the deficiency in the media is that they miss the forest for the trees in that there's a constant examination of moments in silos at the expense of being able to appreciate everything for what it is, which is part of a momentous unfolding event that's happening not to our grandparents, not to our parents, but to us right now. And there's a story like I, I just like to share with you, right? And, and your listeners too. And it's so perfect for this moment in time. The 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 architect of the world that we that we live in was the greatest president of the 20th century. And a and a man who was very, very, very close to being Lincoln's peer. And that that was Franklin Roosevelt. And and Franklin Roosevelt architects this American-led liberal global order that comes into being replacing what? The British Empire. It's preferential trading systems. Uh, the idea of empire and subjugation of colonial populations in the service of mother country. The American perspective rejected all of that. The UN Declaration of Human Rights, a world bound by values and freedom that would come after, imperfect as it may be, as it came to be, as far as visions go, right? FDR's vision was substantially attained. And he talked about this one night with a really close friend of his, uh, who was the Canadian Prime Minister, Mackenzie King, who would often come and stay in the White House. And and King recognized immediately in his friendship that he was with a world historical figure, uh, a profoundly important person, and he took copious notes. And, and FDR is talking late into the night about this vision of the world, and he says to the prime minister that he knows that this world that he hopes to come into being won't last forever. He says, because nothing does. He wants it to last for as long as everybody who is alive on the day the war is won is still alive. And the youngest of these people now are 76 years old. 
the participants in the events, the men who parachuted into Normandy, the men and women who survived the death camps, the millions of refugees in Europe who were starving, have lived to the end of long human lifespans. And so here we are with the largest invasion force in Europe since 1945, poised to invade Ukraine, a breaking of a consensus about how we apportion power through elections, and the idea that there are ideas and values that define freedom through something greater than the power of a mob or a faction through its lust for it or its feelings of entitlement. And that's what's on the line. And there's a total inability to look at it, to face it uh, for a lot of different reasons and to call it by its name, which is something you do all the time. And it's one of the reasons I admire you. I'm so happy to be with you today. And I'm sorry for such a long opening on it. <laughs> no, it's good. I'm, I'm, I'm all on board. <laughs> I'm like listening. I'm wrapped. I'm in. Um, no, I think the thing is, is I think one of the points you're making here is that, you know, you have FDR saying like, I want it to last as long as the people who are alive. And we're coming up maybe to the end of that. Does that mean we're done? Is this the best we can do? I, I remember standing in the forum the first time I went to Rome. And they were like, oh, this is where the senators would make their speeches. And here's where we would do our plays. And here's where the Colosseum is. And, and I remember standing there and thinking a whole civilization was here with government and, and theater and arts and literature. And then it was just gone. And how does that happen? How can you have a great civilization that destroys itself? And then I look at America and I think, oh, well, this is how, you know? And I wonder if we don't stop the path we're on now, if we end up, quite frankly, with the planet, I'm not sure if there's going to be anyone standing in our quote unquote forum, but if we don't end up losing what it is that we have. You, you made a very good point when you were on Lawrence, uh, Lawrence's show. You said, despite all the flaws of the country, all the hypocrisies that the country has, it's an amazing place. We're an extraordinary country. Um, and even the people who have caused the most disturbance over time, people like Martin Luther King, they weren't seeking to tear America down. They were seeking to be included in the promise of America. And now we have this group of people who are truly seeking to tear what we have down, to take it away. And that is a party you were a part of for so long. And so do you look at that party and think they're going down this path and they can't be stopped? They just must be defeated? Or do you think the Republicans can be pulled back from the brink? Or do you think the Republican Party itself is over? Well, we have a, we ha so we're not Sweden, right? Right. It's not like we have 18 parties and one of them that was a Democratic Party, small d, right, has taken a flyer, right, and broken right to the left or broken to the right and become autocratic, right? And now they're down to 17, right? We have a two-party system, right? And, and so one of the two parties has opted out of, right, the idea of pluralism, democracy, uh, a peaceful apportionment of political power. So no, that's legitimate. That's legitimate political discourse. Now, New York Times story the next day may seek to look at that and then go talk to someone who voted for it, who explains in the paragraph that no, they didn't actually mean that, but they did. They and did. I think we have to we have to accept that, right? So 
so this needs to be confronted. This needs to be called out. We are in danger of unleashing the furies in this country that we thought were buried, right? And now what I would say is this about the Republican Party that's become the vessel for authoritarianism. You know, when I ran John McCain's in two campaign in 2008, you know, Limbaugh, Hannity, these people went all in to kill McCain, whose position was basically tell them to go fuck themselves, right? And McCain became the nominee, right? This was, these people were there, um, but these people weren't running anything. You know, the inmates weren't in control of the, of the asylum. You know, right. Republican Party, you know, you, we talk at the history, I think it's very important for people on the left to understand this. Ronald Reagan was reelected in 1984. He won 49 states. He, he almost won 50 states. This is not that. This is something new that's part of something old. And yes. all through our history, if this was a Marvel movie, there would be like a black cloud of malevolence, right? That would move and it would occupy. It occupied American life by manifesting itself in something that was called the Confederate States of America. It, it manifested itself in something that was called the Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction. It manifested itself in the Know Nothing movement in the 1840s. And it, and it manifested itself in anti-immigrant movements, anti-Irish, anti-Catholic, in hatred towards the American Indian. And it's a malevolence that has found itself at home in the Democratic Party. It has found itself at home in the Republican Party. Um, this force has moved uh, through all of the pores of American life, regionally, all of the breakdowns that you can seek to name, right? It's penetrated and it's there. And so now it calls itself the Republican Party home. And what we see right at the core is a fascistic enterprise, a conspiracy for the purposes of attaining political power. That's the singularly greatest threat we face as a society to peace and prosperity, right? So the president's going to give a State of the Union pretty soon. You know, I'm sure it'd be like 400 ideas of whatever, of things that will never happen. You know, I think he should go out there and he should, and he should say, you know, the state of our entrepreneurs is very strong. The, the, the state of our research scientists, our research universities is tremendous. Uh, we live at the edge of an age of wonder and, and discovery. Um, the, the, the state of our people is very strong, right? Courage and character and, and grit. Uh, the state of our politics is terrible, mostly because of you people sitting here. Right? The state of our union is weak and decayed because of a politics of selfishness. And like, we, the people, have to decide. You have to decide what type of society you want to live in. People lying to you constantly, gaslighting, intimations of violence, right? The takers who are strong will reign in a type of thugocracy, 
we're going to we're going to throw away the American experiment. Now, Lincoln thought about this. Right. And what 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 he said in his day was, you know, the greatest army in, in Europe will never take a sip of water from the Ohio River. Right. If we are to be doomed, uh, we'll do it by our own hand. Yeah, we'll and, do it by um, ourselves. You know, and and so, you know, we have a moment all around the world. Uh, we see democratic rescission. You know, what we see in Canada is in a mask protest. It's very much linked to everything that's that's happening here, that's happening with the French far right. All of these people, by the way, all know each other in these right wing movements and coordinate. Yeah, it seems like there's just a rising authoritarian movement around the world. Yep. And you wrote a brilliant uh, tweet recently about the Canadian situation. Um, I'm originally from Canada. I'm from Toronto. And so watching it unfold, it feels very unfamiliar to me, uh, being a Canadian, watching that happen. But you basically spoke to the idea that these freedom truckers are not there for uh, mask mandates or vaccine mandates. It's not an individual event happening. It's, it's part of a bigger puzzle. It's part of a bigger picture where democracy is on the ropes and it's a larger scale movement of the far right and conspiracy theorists and anti-government activists and fascism that is on the rise around the world. Um, so do you see the Republican Party and the people in the far right and Donald Trump calling uh, Trudeau, what did he call him, a liberal wingnut or something? Do you see the Republican Party as contributing to this fascistic movement, this rise of the world? Oh, Have they just course. given up of on course. policy and they think, well, we'll just put in our hand here with power by all means. We'll end up taking it and then holding it that way. I think like one of the things that I find so compelling about you as a communicator, right? I'll tell you by the end of the show, right? Why so many people have responded to you the way that they've, that they've responded. But, 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 but before we get there, th there's this impulse right around questions. So look at the Canadian trucker, right? Just let's remove the conversation completely from like America's boundaries, right? For the purposes of making a larger point, right? So the so the so the 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 group that has occupied the Canadian capital, right? And shut it down. Um their spokesman went out there and made very clear what they are doing there. They want to topple the Canadian government. He's there to demand meetings with the governor general to topple the democratically elected government. So many of the questions that have been asked like over these recent years or like some like version of like how I feel about that. Or why do you think he's saying that? As opposed to he just said that we should take him both literally and seriously. Yes. Right. Like so like I just like start at a place of I take everybody literally and seriously. And I think we share that in common. Right. Like he said that and the reason they said it. And there's meaning to it. So Mitch McConnell goes out and he accurately says this was a murderous insurrection. Right? And everyone's like, right, this is great. Right. Like it's like it, I think it's worse. It's worse. Because you are willfully and premeditatedly in a political coalition with those murderous insurrectionists for the cause of taking political power. Yes. He looks at Steve Bannon 
And he looks at Peter Navarro, Rudy Giuliani, and the rest of this terrible freak show, Alex Jones, and his conclusion is what? He has more in common with them than he does with Joe Biden or you? It's insanity, right? The tribal impulse is so strong, the party identification so powerful with these people, it's erased any attachment to an American identity. You have sacrifices in the history of this country. It just beggared the imagination, right? Um, when you when you think about how freedom was expanded, it's not a break with Trump, right? His problem is is that that issue is the irreconcilable issue, right? The conservatives and the fascists can't sit together. The lesson of history is the fascists ultimately devour the conservatives before they devour the society. Mitch McConnell is approaching this as a tactical political problem, not the fundamental moral philosophical question of our time. Yeah. Whether we are going to end, put a knife in it, the American experiment and say, no, there's a better way. This doesn't work. People can't be trusted to pick the leaders. Donald Trump will take care of all of that for us. God forbid. Right? And and so much of American politics then, you know, has devolved to this idea that the vote is really a weapon, right? To punish the other tribe, you know, by sending politicians to Washington to do what's supposed to be the people's business in the name of a public good, right? To punish the people they don't like. Yes. So we have a very, very, very broken politics in this country which is a resilient country. You can look at the 1890s, the 1880s, right? The first two decades of the 20th century. We had a lot of tumult. We had a lot of, we had a lot of change. I mean, the Industrial Revolution, you know, was as consequential, you know, to, to changing, you know, society as the, as the technological revolution is today. We are in a momentous age, you know, with all of this disruption, all of this change and, and change like wet, hot and damp produces fungus, right? That type of change produces demagogues and authoritarians. Well, change also scares people. People sure. are afraid of change. And when people are afraid, they tend to lean towards strongman leaders. They tend to lean towards someone that says, I will take care of this. I will get it for you. I will do it leave it to me, which is how we end up with with terrible leaders to begin with, because somebody says, look at how slow this takes for this to get done. Look at how much time this takes to get done. But give me the power and I will make it go faster for right. you. Give me the power and I will solve all your problems. And then, of course, that never happens, which is why I wonder why someone like Mitch McConnell, who's clearly a brilliant mind, I think he's an evil genius, but a genius all the same. He's very good at what he does. Um, he feels to me like those people that thought they could control the monster and the monster has gotten out of control. And in some ways, I feel like the monster is less Donald Trump and less the Ron DeSantis of the world and more their own base. I feel like the base itself is now leading the party, what the base needs, what the base wants. And they are debasing themselves to appeal to that base. And it concerns me because without this accountability, we're watching the 1-6 committee and we're watching what's happening in Georgia and we're watching what's happening in the state of New York. And people are dying to see accountability. They're dying to see these leaders who have clearly broken the law and have clearly done multiple crimes um, see justice. 
And I think that there's a lot of people in America that are sort of losing hope. If we don't see these people come to justice, should we just give up? Should we say it's, we're going to lose. It doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. The law doesn't matter. And what are your thoughts on that? Because I think people are, are getting very nervous that this terrible behavior will not be held to account. And when it's not held to account, people will give up. They will no longer have hope that good will win. Mm. So they it's, may as but, well have the best deal with bad. Does yeah, that make it's, sense? It's, it's, the, it's the fundamental like societal issue, right? To me, that explains everything, right? It's the collapse of trust. And part of the reason like you have the collapse of trust is because there was a obliteration of the premise of accountability for anyone up the food chain, right? Like, you know, yes. when we're talking about the things everyone did, I'm just thinking, right? It's like, thank God, though, it's nothing serious, like a black kid smoking a joint, right? You know? <laughs> Someone <laughs> you know? selling a loose cigarette on the street or walking with Skittles. Right. You know, selling a, selling a, selling a Lucy or, you know, anything like that. So- I just think if we don't see accountability, people are going to. But we haven't had up. accountability in a generation. Like, I mean, look at oh, look no. at like the defining event, right? That produced all of this, right? Like more than anything else was the financial collapse, right? Yeah, eighteen million people lose their homes or families lose their homes, right? Not a single Wall Street banker goes to jail, right? You know, um, you know, a Marine private losing his rifle is a much bigger deal than a captain of a ship getting drunk and crashing it, right? Like, I mean, we just, we have an inverse proposition, right, on, on all of this stuff. Now, like, at the same time, the only thing worse for this country I could conceivably imagine, you know, is one political party chanting, lock them up, right, is to have a second political party, you know, chanting, lock them up. Right. So, you know, part of this is we have to be consistent in our fidelity to the rule of law and democracy in the sense the truth is like we're not going to know until sometime later what's going on in the Justice Department. Right. We're just we're not going to know. I think is a good thing. I think that they're not supposed to tell us. I think we're all trained to think that law works like a TV show and we're going to get a result right away. And if this is really as big a conspiracy as it appears to be, the amount of unraveling to get it correct is going to take a very long time. And I, I can say I personally have patience for it. I, I personally still have quite a bit of faith in Merrick Garland. I think what he did with the Oklahoma City bombing was incredible. But that took him, the Oklahoma City bombing took him a year and a half, two years yeah. to unravel, to make it perfect, to make that stick. This is what, thousands of people, yeah. hundreds of sitting Congress people, uh, the president of the United States who we have never indicted before. This is all unprecedented. Yeah. And so and I, I can have patience. It's just without the accountability, I think we're doing what Sarah Kenzier calls elite criminal impunity, where people give up on the country because it seems so unjust and so unfair. And we want people to believe in the country enough to fight for it. And if they feel like the country really only works for some and not for others, then it 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 dampens their spirits. The societal problem right which is the expectation like what you're saying right is like can the big powerful person do whatever they want right there's a lot of evidence to suggest the answer to that question is yeah yes (laughs) uh, is is um absolutely right and you watched all of this played out you know you watched it you know what you watched it all be flaunted now i don't have a a doubt that we're going to find out everything uh, that happened by the microsecond 
from the work of the of the one six and investigative committee, right? And then as a and then as a society, as a polity, as an electorate, right? And I don't give a shit what political party you're in. As, a, as an American, you got to look at that and you have to act. I remember being at the Oklahoma City Memorial 10 years on. I flew out with Cheney, who went out and, and did the speech. And, and President Clinton was there, too. And that was, that was one of the finest moments of his presidency. But I'm happy you brought that up about Merrick Garland, because we're, we're all the sum of our experiences, right? And so anybody who was there, who saw what right-wing domestic political terror and violence could do, right? And looked at the pictures of the babies that were killed. I, I have literally zero worries that Merrick Orland has any question whatsoever how, how dangerous this all is by, by virtue of those, those experiences. Right. The power of the right-wing extremist. You know, the power well, of the anti-government there's another policeman, um, you know, I, I like this story. It's um, he, his career was defined by, uh, uh, by a murder trial that he was the lead interrogator for that he did not talk about for a long time afterwards. And um, he was asked a question in the early 1980s if the experience interrogating this, this murderer changed his perspective on, on anything. It, this, this man was an Israeli police captain named Avner Less, and the man he was interrogating was Adolf Eichmann. And one of the architects of the Holocaust. And he said, yeah, he said, it changed my perspective on everything. Most importantly, my belief in democracy, because an Eichmann is only dangerous in a dictatorship of the left or the right. He said, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. We won't ever have, by the way, a left dictatorship in America. Um, we'll we'll only have a right dictatorship, right? But just as the academic point he was making, dictatorship yeah. either either way. To speak to what you're saying about anyone that was there and saw what happened in Oklahoma, knows the power of the right wing terrorists, yeah. knows the power of right wing extremism, knows what we're up against with this rising authoritarian movement in the U.S. Mm -hmm. How do we? Um, counter this network of propagandists that are working for that side. You know, you're a strategist, you're a wordsmith, you know, how do you fight propaganda without equal and opposite um, force to push back against it? We have no Fox News on the left. Uh, the mainstream media is just devoted to both siding things. We just had Maggie Haberman come out saying she knew that Trump was getting rid of, you know, White House documents and she saved it for her book. She didn't put it in the paper where it could have helped us. She waited to profit off it. And so how do you counter this onslaught of, for lack of a better term, fake news um, to make sure that the truth is out there at the same level that the lies are? The right is good at this. They're yeah. excellent at this. And so, as a strategist and a messenger yourself, how do we counter that? So the second part of what Les said um, his takeaway was that there are Eichmanns all around us. They're just harmless and benign in a democracy. They only become deadly in that in that dictatorship. So what is it? And why why is that? Why do they only become deadly in a dictatorship? Because democracy in all of its forms, um, and all of them are imperfect, 
is um, and it's and it's American, it's Canadian. It's the only system of governance of of societal organization that has ever existed uh, that that puts the dignity of the human being above the power of the state, that removes from the power of the state the sovereignty of the human being to love to to create. Right, the idea of natural rights in, in all of these forms, right? It's the antidote to brutalism. Is democracy imperfect? Of course, because it's government of the people, by the people, for the people. And people but, are imperfect. Right? The, the answer to all of this is to embrace America, to embrace the idea to embrace the, the the struggle. You know, Martin Luther King, like I pointed out, you said earlier the other night, didn't want to tear down the society, wanted to be included in its promise. Yeah. Right? We have a 350 million person almost country uh, that's gigantic geographically, a lot of people in it. You know, we need some live and let live, some tolerance, the idea of disagreement, isn't poisonous, right? The idea that someone in Brooklyn and someone in Wyoming might see the world differently, right? Shouldn't make anyone anyone fall off the chair. Um, people navigate no, differences. It's the, it's the argument the, for the Senate. Yeah, right? it's the argument for the Senate. And, uh, you know, the, this whole system requires people of good faith and, and, and goodwill. But, but the fundamental problem we have is that we have about 2% of voters in total, pick through a primary process, 90% of our politicians. So we have obliterated not just a political middle, right, which I think is a space, a mean between two positions, but also a societal when, center, right? Right. A, so when you're a, talking a about this 2%, center. right. When you're talking about this 2%, just so the people who are listening understand, you're ta- are you talking about when we come down to a couple of swing states that decide the election. So it ends up being like 40,000 people in Pennsylvania making right. the decision for the whole country. This is what you're talking about, this 2%. Well, I'm ta- no, no, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the constitution of the House of Representatives and 435 members. 90% right. of those members right, don't have any type of competitive elections. Right. They don't have any type of incentive towards common sense or to accommodation. You, know, you have to be able to work things out. Right. You have to be able to do business. You have to be able to cut deals. I live in the state of Utah. I live in the Intermountain West. Um, we have an enormous water problem here. Right. I, I completely understand that New York and New Jersey is a New Jersey native. Um, that the Lincoln and Holland tunnels are decrepit and the infrastructure is falling apart. Let's do business. That's how this is supposed to work. Right. right? This, this embrace of some... a nihilism in the service of what? Rupert Murdoch's ratings. Right. We, we live in an age of vast stupidity, you know, malice, all of these, all of these things. But so much of it is all contrived. We have a algorithmic prison that's been constructed by a company that's in essence a mass surveillance company that prevents 
through really almost an impenetrable wall, information breaking through that is true, that's reality-based. So we have a societal warping effect, right, between the technology. It's not like we didn't have crazy people before in the society, right? So we have the same number of crazy people, but now they're all connected, right? That's a new, that's a new thing. Okay. They're all connected right. and their voices are amplified and they're put in the same platform as someone who is an actual journalist and they're given the same weight. So that becomes right. a problem. Right. Becomes a yeah. problem. We have cowardly and craven politicians. We have the need for somebody to go out there and articulate some vision for an era of reform. Right. Yes. Which, which, which then comes to like what I would say about you. Right. Which is, you know, as someone who, you know, took to social media um, talking about politics and people have really responded to you. And so, like, what I would say is on a communications basis, who is the closest Democratic elected leader to you? Right. In terms of an ability to communicate just at a skill level. Right. And I, I don't I'm not sure I can tell you who that who that person is off of the off of the top of my head. But what is the difference between you and that politician, the Democratic politician talking about these issues? And I'll tell you what the difference is. And, and, and it's an answer to what we need to have in this country. Have you ever have you ever had a staff meeting? to ask the people around the table what, what it is that you should say before you've, before you've gone on and said it? Um, have, no. have, you ever, have you ever taken a poll? <laughs> right? And no. Right? No. Right? What, what you do is assert conviction, and people respond to it. It's a conviction about the country that the overwhelming silent majority agrees with. Right. You want to you want to understand. And so it drove me, drove me, drove me batshit crazy. Right. During the during the 20 campaign with the Lincoln Project. Right. I'm sure with the the Midas touch guys. Right. Is um, were the ads effective? Well, there was a study by a D.C. Democratic super PAC that said on their polling, no, the ad wasn't effective. Right. It didn't it didn't persuade voters. And there's this belief that the way you communicate Right. Is you put a dial into the hands of 400 people and you show them a TV ad and they turn that dial to the left and the right. And you find some mean between the 400 people and some magic word, you know, usually a preposition, you know, that's 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 going to that's going to trigger an outcome. Right. You know, what it produces yeah. it produces bullshit. It produces yeah. vanilla, generic, land, generic vanilla, nothing oatmeal conviction. Yep, Conviction. Right. So like for six years, like what's work? What have people responded to in the marketplace? Just anecdotally, what they respond to is conviction. Right. Why is Eric Swalwell? Right. Why is Tim Ryan? Right. Why is uh, uh, Schatz from Hawaii? Um, why is Beto. it? Beto right, O'Rourke right, in Texas. It's yep. conviction. We the, the, the country must have an era of reform. It's so badly needed, but you don't get their talking pablum. There is a there is a um, extraordinary thing that like we should just be honest and talk about, right? That that is absent completely from the conversation. 
I've gone all in fighting Donald Trump. I, I feel just at a at a at a personal level. Everything I've I, I, I've I've ever I've ever said about him, I, I believe is true. Right. As you stand a, behind it. Yeah. As a threat, like I, I stand behind it. It seems to me that there's no mystery left. There's no details really to be learned about him, about what they believe. It's all staring at us very plainly in the face, five years of five years of chaos. So this moment's going to depend on an application of common sense, people caring enough to not let a small quorum of whack jobs take over the school board and community after community after after community all around the around the country. But it's but it's going to require a conviction, um, a, a conviction um, that there's possibility for a better for a better day, uh, conviction steeped in the American idea and, and people who can communicate it clearly. It's not right. it's not it's not a hard choice. And, and when bringing a full circle. To the, to the great political dilemma is the Democratic Party is losing to these people right now. They're going to lose, right? And and so th- so it begs a question: if they are as terrible as I'm saying they are, and they are, how could it be you could lose to those people? And and there's a and there's a reality here: a coalition in this country came together just by the structure of the elections in 2018, had a lot of Republicans in it, a lot of Republican women in it. And it basically was like, Trump's crazy. We're putting a check on him. Made made Nancy Pelosi the speaker. In 20, that coalition held together for Joe Biden, right? But it collapsed below him. And right now, Joe Biden is president by 45,000 votes across three states. Like that part of the electorate seems to be looking. And they're like, well, Trump's not on the ballot. And maybe these people can be the people to put a check on you. And 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 there's a lot of justification that goes into, well, you know, the guy I'm voting for is not crazy. You know, I mean, come on. Mitch McConnell just said he thought it was an insurrection. It was terrible. I thought it was terrible. But the point is the fusion of the coalition elements under the umbrella of a violent cause, legitimate political discourse. Yes, I mean, you don't have to look much further than Virginia. Virginia and Glenn Youngkin. He looks like he's not crazy, he's normal. And yet the policies are exactly the same as you would have got under Trump or DeSantis. He's exactly the same. He's just wearing a fleece vest while he does it. And I think the thing is, is that uh, the reason the Lincoln Project was created, the reason Midas Touch was created, the reason I do what I do is because there is a gap. There is an opening. There is a missing link between what the major parties can do and what needs to be done. And so I think it's groups like ours that we're trying to fill that gap. I always say that the the DNC and the Democrats in general, I think they have good intentions, but good intentions, Mm -hmm. we all know what happens with them. And I feel like they are an aircraft carrier. And even if they want to change direction, it takes them so long 
to change a couple of degrees and we don't have that kind of time. So I see people like the Lincoln Project, I see people like what I'm doing, I see what the Midas guys are doing as helicopters going off that aircraft carrier, speedboats going beside it. We're not part of that machine. We are outside of that machine and we speak in a way that will allow people to connect with their democracy and connect with their country and say, this is a real problem. I'm speaking to you in real terms and you can't check out now. This is not when you check out. This is not when you say, well, we voted Democrat last time. I guess we'll just vote Republican this time. It speaks to what you were saying about the 2% making these decisions. I say all the time, if you're district is gerrymandered. If your district is safe red and you think, oh, I'm in a safe red district and I'm a Republican, isn't that wonderful? And I said, that's not wonderful because if it's a safe red district and you are a Republican, please know they don't answer to you. They answer to the people that made that district a safe red district. They're not Mm -hmm. responsible to their voters. They're responsible to the people that drew the lines. They're responsible to the donors. They're responsible to the people that kept them in power. You want a government that is responsible to the people. And the only way you get that is with a working democratic system, which is what we have to keep pushing for and reminding people that it is that essential and that it is that fragile. It's We're really holding it in our hands right now. And it's the choices we make in the next nine months that will really direct the state of this country. Yeah. And I have to let you go. Um, I know I have to let you go. Um, but ultimately, you and I we come from different sides of the political spectrum. Really, you were a lifelong Republican. I would be a lifelong liberal. But we're now on the same team. And I think probably you and I would always have seen eye to eye uh, because we both like political discourse. We both are not extremist on either side. But we're both currently on team American democracy. Um, And if you were going to leave people with one idea of what they should do or why they should care about the midterms, about the 2024 election, about American democracy in general... What would you want to tell them? You can't opt out of one part of it. You opt out of all of it at once. And when you opt out of it, meaning democracy, you opt out of the rule of law. You opt out of the idea of fairness. You opt out of the idea that you're protected from being bullied by something or something more powerful than you, because all that matters right at that point is the favor of the leader. Um, When Rudolph Giuliani or a Newt Gingrich talk about locking up political opponents, they're talking about me and you. I know. And um, is the journey by miles? Think about it this way. From the day that Newt Gingrich became speaker to him just recently calling for locking up you and me, what's a longer and shorter journey, right? Is it is it from that point A to point B, or is it from the locking people up to the executioner's wall for political beliefs? Because history will tell you it's the back half of that journey is the much shorter one, right? Yeah. So, so we live in an era like where we seem like really immunized from tragedy, even with the tragedy of COVID. I'm talking about... 10 million European refugees, right? Like, like destruction of a 21st century war by like the Russian army, right? In a, like in a country, right? I'm I'm talking about like, like mass suffering, right? Like oppression politically, the government owning the TV stations, all of this, right? You, you should never underestimate man's capacity for cruelty when it's unrestrained by the checks and balances that only democracy provide.
in all of human in all of human history. And so, like, are we in a bad and dangerous place? Yeah. You know, I mean, look, here's the deal. You know, I, I, I was a, I played a leading role in two presidential campaigns and there's a lot of heated rhetoric. Do you, do you know what the difference economically we were fighting about, like in tax rates between those two presidential campaigns? I do not know that, Steve. <laughs> the Democratic rate was thirty nine point six percent. The Republican rate was thirty five percent. Right. This is the delta, right, between a just and an unjust society. It's not performative anymore. Right. We're not we're not arguing between a centrist course around the middle of the field. Right. This is an era of extremism. It's a dangerous hour. And and if and if people are not participatory in it and they can't recognize the danger, we will lose the country. I mean, it's just as it's just yeah. as simple as that. You can lose it to indifference. Uh, you can lose it to malice. Um, in the end, there's only two when there's only two ways to win a fight. You can bring your opponent to submission. Think Germany after World War Two or your opponent can bring you to exhaustion. Think of the Taliban and, and the Vietnamese and the United States Army. We cannot be exhausted by the insanity, by any of this, or we will lose it. And despite whatever faults the Democratic Party has, how unyieldy the faction may be, how unyieldy the coalition may be, it's the only institution that exists in the United States of America today that exists for purposes of stopping the only institution in the country that has sworn itself now to the purposes of political violence for the achievement of political power, right? So one is a much better alternative, right, than the other, even on the former's worst day. And I think we got to yeah. bear that in, in, in mind is a little bit of grace and generosity of spirit. But we're approaching in politics um, the bullshit uh, stopping line, and we gotta we gotta get ready to focus on the election and do everything that's possible to frame this in a way uh, that 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 Republicans will not take power and cause two years of abject chaos um, in the lives of the American people. Thank you so much for yes. having me. Thank you so much for joining the conversation today. My only hope is that we get to a point in American democracy where you and I end up sparring over percentage rates again. And uh, that's what we're discussing. We're a, um, we're a long way off. I know. <laughs> We've got a lot of work to do. We might spend some time in prison in the meantime. But uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Steve. You're just... You're such um, an inspiration to me as a messenger. And I just hope you just continue to go out there and do your great work and promote democracy. Um, and I will do it um, from my side as well. Thank you. So that was Steve Schmidt, American strategist thinking outside the box about how to best preserve the American experiment. My only hope is that we do a good enough job saving American democracy that the two of us end up sparring over policy again. I think we can both agree that there's room for multiple points of view in America, as long as one of those points of view isn't fascism. Now go out and make the world a better place. I'd like to thank Steve for joining us today and thank you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.